Uh, I got another one here from the Bardic College. The first official D&D glimpse the public got of the Forgotten Realms was in Dragon Magazine number 62. Oh boy, this is an oldie but a goodie. In the first installment of Ed Greenwood's Pages from the Mages, that's, you know, Elminster himself, instead of just publishing articles with new AD&D spells, the articles describe specific spellbooks, the history, the wizards that owned those spellbooks, and what was contained within them, including the new spells. Greenwood's motivation for publishing the articles? He wanted to give his NPCs new spells, and he thought it would be fair to his players if an editor accepted them into a professional publication. Well, that's really very nice of Mr. Greenwood. What a stand-up guy. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is an evil spell put on us that made us shun our friend when Blackleaf died. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew. Oh my god, that's been 10 years. <laughs> uh, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I kind of became Ped Gnome. So, Those yeah. years kind of sneak up on you, don't they? <laughs> oh my god. The older you get, the faster they come. I am Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about arcane magic and how to fit it into your character's backstory. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. As... Usual per late, I haven't been running any D&D games, but I have two, well, technically three that I've been playing in regularly, but Jared's going to talk <laughs> about his, so I won't touch on that one. In the Undermountain game, we spent pretty much the entire session in a running fight. We basically were in this, I don't remember the name of the place, it's a volcano, there's demons, devils or something, and we need to find the Book of Vile Darkness. So we get an audience with the Efridi that was in charge. Technically, he was second in command because the big head honcho was someplace else. And, well, we tried to goad him into starting a fight, but eventually Malcolm, our warlock, said screw it and hit him with a couple of Eldritch Blasts to get things going. <laughs> now, outside of the audience chamber, we knew there were a couple of salamanders and a beholder. So Tad, our grung wrestler <laughs> cast big frog on my fighter selena big frog is basically what he calls the enlarged spell <laughs> uh so she basically barred the door so we could have the fight with just the afridi and his fire elementals as part of that whole fight a lightning bolt went through the afridi his throne and through the door to the secret chamber beyond the throne which was like oh we knew where we need to go next <laughs> We did that fight relatively handily. There was one point where the Beholder and the Salamanders were trying to batter down the door, so when there was a momentary crack in it enough to see outside, Arima, our magic cleric, cast reverse gravity outside so that the Salamanders, the Beholder, and all of the lava in that room would go up to the ceiling <laughs> and cause some problems. We rushed into the, the room through the secret passageway, which turned out to be a hallway between three different rooms. And Arima used stone shape to seal the secret passage behind us. 
We then made the mistake of failing a check to basically, actually, I think we needed the key. We had the key. We didn't know we had the key. Either way, we triggered two stone golems in the hallway to come to life and try and kick our butts for trying to go into one of the rooms without permission. <laughs> um, that was a tough fight to have in a relatively small hallway, especially when both of the stone golems were large, Selena was large, and everyone else was <laughs> running around amidst all of them. Eventually, Malcolm ran into the, the bedroom that we believed the book would be in, saw the book on a table. Of course, it's not that easy. He goes to pick up the book. It's a mimic. <laughs> what are you going to do? So we're doing that fight. Eventually, the, uh, the Beholder and the Salamanders get into the, the audience chamber. Now, mind you, at the beginning of that fight with the Afridi, Tad has a bag of tricks. He summoned a giant goat. That giant goat was a badass. <laughs> he actually got the killing blow on the Afridi, and because he was large, we left him in the audience chamber. He tried. He tried really hard, but the Beholder ended up disintegrating him. We figure now that whenever Tad pulls a giant goat from his, <laughs> his pack, it is that goat. That goat is coming back to us. Either way, we deal with the, the stone golems, and then the actual head honcho Afridi shows up and starts trying to kill us. We're just like, I don't, what are we doing? Because we've got a secret door that the Beholder and the Salamanders are trying to break through. We've got to, we deal with him. And then, thankfully, the Arcanaloth that was kind of trying to play all angles was like, oh, okay, there are now job opportunities open for me. He told the salamander and salamanders and the beholder to stand down, told us where we can go to find the book, and is now going to work at setting himself up as the boss of this place. <laughs> it was a long session of all fight. It was fun, but it was all fight. <laughs> when you mentioned the, the uh, reverse gravity on the Beholder, I just pictured the Beholder staying in the same spot and its eyes just rotating to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> we knew the reverse gravity wouldn't hurt the Beholder much. What hurt the Beholder was the lava. Because <laughs> now the lava yeah. is going in the same place yeah. he was flying and all of that. The salamanders, it was just slam against the ceiling and then slam <laughs> against the floor when it was dropped. I also I ran an adventure where these cultists had giant goats that were basically their watchdogs. And it was a running joke because <laughs> the goats failed their perception checks every time the PCs were sneaking by. <laughs> but the goats were always just standing there looking really intimidating. <laughs> so over in the City of Cal's campaign, um, we returned to the Blue Dragon to demand the Eye of Mithanwi. I really wish I could remember the Blue Dragon's name. He has a name. I just didn't write it down. <laughs> he was playing with us. He demanded that we tell him the story of how we killed Melitsu, the Copper Dragon. So we lied and told him <laughs> how we did it. You know, basically telling the truth for everything we could except for the part about killing her. Because we didn't kill her. We made a deal with her. She was currently flying above the old temple, invisible with Anu waiting to, to make their attack. So as we told this story, it became clear he was playing with us, and that was when Anu and Melitsu made their appearance because all of his obsessed dragonborn soldiers were gathering outside and about to come in to storm it. So that started the fight. Um, it was, you know, it's a dragon fight. That's a pretty darn cool thing <laughs> to have in 
a D&D game, and we even had a dragon on our side. So we had a blue dragon fighting us with all of his minions, and Melitsu the copper dragon on our side, and all of us, and it was a really fun fight. When we finally defeated him, though, Tiamat decided to express her displeasure by causing the entire temple to collapse. <laughs> Kai, our ranger, was able... He dragged the body of the servitor that had the Eye of Mithanwi on him out of the building as the blue dragon was expiring. But then we had kind of promised Melitsu the blue dragon's treasure hoard. So we tried to gather up as much of as it could, but that wasn't working very well entire temples collapsing. And then Dove, my sorcerer, failed her deck save and kind of got trapped in the collapsing rubble. And everyone's like, oh no, what are we going to do? And I'm like, no, 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 I got this. Cast Polymorph on Dove, turned her into a T-Rex and basically rar stomped out of the building. None the worse for wear. <laughs> I mean, a little banged up, but there you go. We discovered that Tiamat had a very obsessive relationship with the Eye of Mithanwi and had always coveted it. So even if it meant the world was going to destroy, um, she was hoping we would fail in acquiring <laughs> it, even if she pretended to help us. After that, we rested up and planned our next move. There were some dream communications and some scrying and all of this to figure out where to go, what to do next. Dove was attuning to the Eye of Mithanwe, because <laughs> that was her artifact to acquire. But next up, we are gating to the southern lands where all of the Dragonborn tribes are, because it is Z's duty to try and unite the tribes. And they're in trouble because demons and devils are coming in all over the place. That's usually not a good thing. No, no, but this is, this is the state of the world right now, which is what we're trying to fix. <laughs> Now, is that the other campaign where you have the draconic magic items? Yes. Okay. Yes. As soon as I saw those in Fizzbands, I wanted to use them in a campaign, so apparently I wasn't the only one. <laughs> yeah, Dove picked up the Ascendant Dragon Orb when we fought the Red Dragon uh, in the previous chapter of the campaign, before all of the, basically, the veil between worlds started falling apart. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, go get Fizzbands Treasury of Dragons, because it's got neat stuff in it. So, all right. In my Midgard Marodi Empire game, gee, there's there's a dragon theme going on here. Lots of dragons. It's dungeons and <laughs> dragons. So our PCs just completed a major mission. Um, they needed to place the Pearl of Sagotan in the depths of the Isle of Midnight so that the dragon god could reclaim the island into the sea. Last session, we found out that the chamber that they needed to place the pearl in had lots of tentacles beings rising up out of the water. He made us fight an Aboleth. I did. And I used the level up advanced 5e version of the Aboleth because it had a few of the old school, older edition abilities that newer Aboleths kind of have, but not really. Things like releasing a mucus cloud that potentially mutates you so you can't breathe air anymore. Fun stuff. <laughs> so the chamber had the Aboleth in it and two chules, which if you've never seen what a chule is, they're like giant lobsters with longer legs and tentacles. Very simple. And a uh, an Aboleth spawn, which is basically a humanoid that's being, being slowly turned into less and less of a humanoid. So it was sort of humanoid from the waist up and then tentacles on the way down. We felt a little bad for him. Yeah. He was resigned <laughs> to his fate. I was kind of having some fun, you know, just having him like hopelessly devoted to the Aboleth and just being wildly unconcerned with their own health. <laughs> 
they were also like weirdly polite every time they were planning on doing something horrible to the PCs. <laughs> Basically, the Chules and the Abla spawn kind of kept three of the PCs pinned in one side of the cave, and our Cyanite uh, Dragonborn tried to solo the Abeleth by himself for a while. <laughs> It'll be fine, citizens. <laughs> He actually did a pretty good job of keeping it away from the rest of the party while they were finishing off the guards. I mean, we still had to save him when he did finally go down. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, eventually he was charmed and the Abeleth has an ability where if you are charmed, it can do psychic damage to you and heal itself. So after he managed to actually get it bloodied, which was impressive, it wasn't bloodied anymore and he went down. <laughs> the Abeleth basically carried him around like he was a teddy bear. It was great. <laughs> The thing that I don't know that I completely communicated to all of you was that the Abeleth wanted to keep either the Cyanite or Kazina alive because we have two psionic characters out of the party. So the Abeleth kind of wanted them around to experiment on them because, you know, humanoids that start developing mental powers without Abeleths experimenting on them are fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I think we kind of got that he, he wanted to, like the way he was carrying Marin around like a teddy bear. I think we kind of got that he was planning on keeping him. <laughs> He's mine now. Eventually, everybody kind of got it together, beat the Abeleth. It was it was a pretty, I'd say it was a fairly rough fight. I think it was honestly the first time I've actually been worried. <laughs> Everyone else in the party is like, oh, I guess I need to come up with what my next character is going to be. <laughs> and I'm just like, stop it. Stop it. This one I actually was a little worried about. It was interesting because there was a few times when if it had managed to, um, yeah, if, if a few of you weren't rolling really high on your wisdom saves, which everyone but Marin was, it could have gone much differently, uh, especially when the Aboleth almost called uh, your sorcerer into the uh, water to him after the <laughs> mucus had already been spawned in the water. <laughs> that water was not safe to go into. That would have been a little nasty. But our PCs managed to plant the pearl. They sang the Song of Sagotan to activate it, which... None of them sang it well, but it just had to happen. It didn't have to be done well. Kazina <laughs> tried. And uh, Sagotan, the uh, dragon god of the sea, rose up out of the sea and ate the island. And the baby void dragon retained its uh, old essence and has become an adult void dragon and is, you know, tearfully saying goodbye. Well, tearfully for some members of the party, Marin is actually much more comfortable now that the void dragon isn't traveling with them anymore. He doesn't fit in the house anymore. He would like perch on the house and just be the house at that point. <laughs> but our characters are going to take the winter off. And while they are resting up, they received a thank you gift from the mercenary that they saved from the hag, which is a key to a mercenary's fortress that has been locked for decades, which is just sitting up on a hill in their city. Should they so choose, you know, they have the uh, they have a golden ticket to go explore a dungeon now. Yes, which is probably what we'll do when the spring comes. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. So moving on into our Dungeon Master's Workshop, for a long time, arcane magic was the other side of the coin from divine magic. The biggest difference between the two was that arcane magic was the one you studied, while divine magic was the one you had to have faith for. AD&D really didn't formalize the terms, but by second edition, there were wizard spells and priest spells and mage specialists and bards and... They got their spells from the wizard lists and cleric druids and rangers and paladins got their spells from the priest list. Third edition formalized the terms arcane and divine for sources of magic. And fourth edition added multiple sources of power 
Uh, but the most noteworthy one was the primal power source, because that's where the nature classes derive their power from. Tales of the Valiant may be expanding this concept further with arcane, divine, and primal and weird powers for casters, but today we're going to specifically look at arcane magic. What is it in your campaign, and how can your players use it to inform their characters? So, starting off, does the source of magic play a role in your games? I don't know that it is dramatically important in the current campaign that I'm running, but I almost always have a thought process as to what magic actually is. I am not advocating that every DM needs to have the the (laughs) deep cosmic secrets of their universe worked out, but I am going to say if you have at least a little bit of an idea, it does kind of help you throw in some story elements about things. These are kind of gleaned from different D&D sources. Some of these have been more formally said. Some of these have been less formally said. But there's kind of a few different concepts that have floated around D&D for a while. One is that arcane magic is what's left over from the creation of the universe. It's the stuff that didn't go back to the gods once everything got created. Another idea is that arcane magic is literally tapping into the potential for creation inherent in the universe itself. So as long as people have a, have you know imaginations or the ability to create art, there is the potential for magic to happen because there's always that potential for things to be created. And then there is the, the more um, cosmic horror uh, side of things where arcane magic is kind of more scientific and you're perceiving the patterns in the underlying universe so that you can rewrite the source code that is visible <laughs> to you and re put the universe back together again after you've started disassembling it. I'll be completely honest. I've never thought about this that much. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I mean, I've thought about it in terms of, is this a high magic world? Is this a low magic world? That type of thing. But in my mind, it's fantasy. It's D and D. There needs to be magic. Do the players even have an idea of where it's cut? Co- no, they just know whether they can use it or not. You know, so I've ne- it's never come into play in a game I have run or deeply when I've been a player. I don't think it's ever been a major plot point, but I do overthink things. So I couldn't help but, you know, like kind of look at, OK, where did people say this come from? <laughs> so if it has played a role in your game, do, do the characters have theories about that source of magic? This is part of where I think that doing that a little bit of that thought process or at least brainstorming what magic could be is something that's kind of fun if you're an arcane caster Mm -hmm. because this sets up this idea that you know i think magic is this way and it, it may even be that your character thinks that magic is one of these things but traditional schooling of magic says that it is another one of these things so that you're it's almost like the um the thing that i thought of when i was thinking about the uh you know, conflicting theories of how magic actually worked was actually like paleontologist and the big hubbub when the first paleontologist started saying that dinosaurs were descended from birds and some of the stodgier, older paleontologists were like, no, that can't be true. And there was there was much <laughs> virtual bloodshed among academia at that point in time. <laughs> Chickens are literally just dinosaurs. <laughs> Have you ever watched chickens stomping around a yard? Of course they're oh dinosaurs. Geese. Look at geese. Oh geese look like raptors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I don't think this has ever come up in my game, other than a little and and this is veering off topic a little bit, 
in Eberron, the gods are not as involved in the world as they are in some of the other D&D settings. So there's a little bit of a question on where is that divine magical power coming from? But it's never mm -hmm. really been explored too deeply. It's still a faith-based thing for the divine magic, which is not what we're talking about today. I think the settings that got me thinking about this sort of things the most is, one, you have Forgotten Realms where you have the Weave and Mistra and all of that. You know, that's obviously something that is tied into a lot of the story of it. But the other thing that used to really get into this was second edition mm -hmm. in Dark Sun, because there was that idea that magic, if if abused, you know, because it very much had this environmental theme, like if magic is abused, it does more damage than it can repair when it is used. So those were kind of those neat, like deeper thoughts that I kind of got into. I don't know that a lot of settings have delved into that quite as much in recent years. I feel like, like I mentioned earlier, the concept of high magic, low magic, that seemed to be in play more often in the first and second edition era of the game, and not mm -hmm. so much in third, fourth, fifth era. Yeah, fifth edition is def definitely assumes a, you can have varying degrees of commonality to magic, but fifth edition is definitely assuming that at least adventurers are dealing with magic on a regular basis, even if common people aren't. That leads us into our, ver our next question. How common is magic in your games? Is it something that only the rare few can access and master? Or is it something common enough that there are magical schools people can send their children to? Right now, I'm running a published adventure. So it is sort of assumed that in a lot of places in Midgard, because Midgard is based on a lot of like Eastern European style fantasy, there is magic, but there is a certain like creepy vibe to it. And, you know, regular people usually don't learn magic. And there is sort of a implied inherent danger to it when you do learn magic. You know, there aren't a lot of formalized schools for magic in uh, in Midgard, but there are also uh, there is still a lot of magic around, whether it's like a natural thing that happens to people. I mean, all of you live in a country ruled by dragons, so you are going to definitely see magic. But there is also not just this common thing where, you know, if your kid shows some ap aptitude, they're going to send them to a school so that they can learn magic either. One of my loves of the Eberron setting is that it is a there is a deep level of magic in the setting. Mm -hmm. People of all walks of life have access to magic. The trick in Eberron is that the high level magic is not common. You can find access to like first level spells in almost any town you go to, but finding somebody who can actually cast some of those fifth, sixth, seventh level spells, that's like a, you know, one in a million person, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it is only the PCs. And I think this can sometimes lead to a tough line to walk in our D&D games because Magic is extremely accessible to the player characters, so it can be a bit confusing when that magic is not as easily accessible to the world at large. I talked about this in relation to my Zendrick campaign, where we had to have a conversation about the fact that, yes, greater restoration could fix this one NPC's physical ailments, but they can't just find somebody who can cast that mm -hmm. their most likely access to that spell is going to be the pc who suggested this 
getting to the level where he can cast it and coming back and doing it mm -hmm. because they can't just go to the city and say, yo, somebody cast greater restoration on me. Same thing with any of the higher level wizard spells. I know I keep di diverting into the <laughs> the divine spells here, but the concept is is similar. Yeah. So I think it's it's important to have that, you know, like especially work that into what your players understand of the world. I do think it's interesting because D&D has definitely moved more into you are playing the character you want to play. And in earlier editions of D&D, it was more you are playing the characters that the dice told you you were going to play. <laughs> <laughs> And I think to a certain extent, that means that if somebody wants to play a, a spellcaster, they're going to be playing a spellcaster. They're not going to worry about whether they rolled really high on their intelligence or, you know, anything like that. It's just a decision that they make. And that tends to reinforce that idea that you're not on the outside looking in and seeing, oh, wow, there's magic in this world. You're on the inside looking out going, we're the guys with magic and we're the ones that have to do all the important magic stuff. I, I think, you know, back in the day... Gate, it, there's a little bit of gatekeeping to it, but it was there was a lot more control about what you were allowed to play. And some of this was just setting based and story based. And some of it was just GMs being a little too power hungry and not letting people play <laughs> what they wanted to because you can't play an elf. Only he can play an elf. Yeah. You know, screw that guy. <laughs> um, but I think because of a lot of that attitude in the early decades of D&D, &D, there was this like unleashing of the no play what you want that started with third edition and has kind of mm -hmm. come forward like e like i am delighted by the sheer variety of characters i see people playing in fifth edition because it's like the idea of my, my tabaxi wizard sapphire <laughs> like GMs back in the 80s and 90s would have been like, no, what are you talking about? Of course you can't play a cat person. That's just too weird. Yeah. I mean, that's why I kind of, I don't necessarily know that I always love life path systems that randomly tell you your background, but I do kind of like that idea that at least in some point in that life path, you're thinking, how did I learn this? Mm -hmm. Because it makes you stop and think, like you were saying in Eberron, in Eberron, if you learn how to cast a cantrip, most people are not going to be that surprised by that. Yeah. That's like somebody telling you that they learned how to code. You know, <laughs> it's it, okay. Big deal. You know, on the other hand, like in like Dragonlance, for example, if someone learns how to cast a cantrip, they have to be, you know, given over to a certified member of the conclave of wizards and carefully trained to make sure that they understand the importance that surrounds magic and if they are going to be reckless, they need to be, you know, they need to make sure that they never learn how to use anything more important than low level spells. It's really interesting because most of that now has to be done on a role playing basis because it isn't reinforcing the mechanics. And I'm not saying I really want it to be because it wasn't a lot of fun when you wanted to play a wizard and you rolled a 12 intelligence. So you were never going to get higher than, you know, second level spells or whatever, you know, <laughs> That kind of leads us to our next topic in this conversation. Wizards must learn magic through study with a spellbook playing a prominent role. Have you had the the concept of a magical school or one-on-one -on -one apprenticeships play a role in your games for wizards? One of my favorite um one of my favorite characters that one of my players made in a Forgotten Realms game was a farmhand that found a spellbook. <laughs> And the way that he 
explained it was reading through the spell book. It wasn't like anybody could pick up the spell book and read it and, and, and just start casting spells. But he started like chanting and trying to do things enough to where random dangerous things would happen. <laughs> In the Forgotten Realms, there is a, a there is a position called the Magister, and the Magister just randomly wanders around looking for people that have magical potential to train them. So it's always like this apprenticeship thing, and it's basically this this office that has been established so that people that live in like remote places like that actually have the opportunity to become wizards. And I always really like that idea because it is kind of that balancing point between yes, this person probably would never have the opportunity to be a wizard. But it's still that one-on-one -on -one apprenticeship, so you can kind of have that whole, like, the wandering wizard comes in from, you know, the wilderness and starts teaching you how to do these things that, you know, everybody else in town would never imagine anyone could do. <laughs> and that has been, like, one of my favorite, like, apprentice storylines that anybody has, has really had. I loved it, too, because he used to, he would roleplay his character as being terrified whenever he did something, whenever he did cast a spell, like... I'm going to try and do a magic missile. And then like when they would shoot out and kill something, he'd be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. I know in the Zendrick game, Chris was playing a wizard bard. Chris can't do a single class character. He always needs to multi-class, <laughs> but he's playing a wizard bard whose parents both teach at an arcane college. Mm -hmm. And so he has, he's, built his character up with a lot of these, I need to prove myself to my parents, I need to do this, because I need to prove myself that I am a capable wizard. And he's already got various conflicts with his parents because he's a he's a um, blade singer instead of a typical mage. He, we built a lot of that into the story for his character, which has been fun. I like the idea of magical schools and colleges. And I kind of like, though, the idea that maybe it's not something that is true of the entire campaign setting, but maybe just in certain places, like in the Forgotten Realms, Silvery Moon has magical schools. Like in most of the realms, you're probably going to learn from that master or apprentice situation or in Thay, you're going to be assigned <laughs> to someone to learn to do things exactly the way that person wants you to do things and probably used as cannon fodder. But in Silvery Moon, there are like colleges where, you know, some of the courses of study are learning how to cast spells in this, you know, formalized place and everything. I misspoke before because when I said that about Midgard and they're not really being schools, I was wrong because it's exactly what I was talking about. In Zobek, there is a college for, you know, for magic. And it is kind of this this thing that shows that Zobek is kind of the cutting edge, you know, city that is sort of the most advanced place in Midgard. Where there, are, you know, there are these uh, people learning magic, and clockwork magic is one of the, you know, one of the newer, you know, things that is being being taught there. So I really like that idea of schools. I haven't used it as much as I would like, though. In the City of Cal's campaign, part of Dove's backstory is that when she started showing signs of magical aptitude, they shipped her off to the White Lotus Academy, which was the mm -hmm. magical school in the setting. Dove is not a wizard. <laughs> Dove is a sorcerer. And so we played on a lot of the fact that she was a really, really bad student. Mm -hmm. And she ended up running off with a bard when word came that her father was going to marry her off to some other noble and all of that. But because the head of the White Lotus Academy is one of the prominent NPCs in the game, we've had many conversations where she'll just 
shake her head at Dove's ability to just do certain things without any training. <laughs> that's not how it's supposed to work. Have you ever made the wizard's spellbook a focus of a game story? Because technically you could really screw over a wizard by stealing their spellbook, but do we really want to be that kind of a jerk of a GM? First off, 5th edition is much nicer to, to people because they it basically tells you that you know you can reconstruct things from what you remember. So it, it's more a matter of taking time and money and not that you know you will never have your spells back again. And I believe you'd still have your cantrips. Oh yeah, you don't you don't lose your cantrips. And if you don't change the spells that you have, which is a different, you know, thing than previous, you know, editions, you're still okay for, you know, for a while there. But in older editions, that was I mean, it was literally this this is why they would tell you there were specific things in the um in the equipment chapters about these this is how much a traveling spellbook costs. And you should probably have a home spellbook that is safe. And a traveling spellbook that you take with you on adventures. And that traveling spellbook, <laughs> the DM is supposed to kind of feel okay for destroying because you, you're just screwed and don't have spells until you can get back home. So now you're just dead weight in the party <laughs> because they took out your uh, spellbook. And there were even monsters. Of course there were because it was earlier editions of D&D. There were monsters like bookworms that would literally <laughs> eat spellbooks. I enjoyed playing um, Sapphire, who was an order of scribes wizard um so her her spell book was literally a major aspect of the way she cast spells and that was a lot of fun i really wish i really wish that campaign hadn't quite died the way it did but yeah i really i like the order of scribes because that makes the spell book a much more active part of the wizard the other thing that i like that's just a simple thing and it started in fourth edition is that wizards can use a book as a casting implement so like you could have a spell book. You, know, you could have a plus two spell book that helps you, you know, shoot your fireballs. You just have to be holding your spell book whenever you cast your spells. <laughs> I like that idea because it is kind of mechanically reinforcing that books are important to you. Like, you know, this is part of who you are. You should love that book. And I say this, you know, surrounded by all these books that are in my on my desk here right now. The other thing that is I really think I should spend. Well, I don't have to spend as much time with this because I haven't had as many wizards. but. If you have a wizard, try to make up some neat actual spell books. This is one of the things that I loved about the Forgotten Realms early on. There were named spell books from famous wizards that had very specific spells in them. So these spell books had a history to them as well. And that wasn't just the Forgotten Realms because one of the early things in the Dragonlance novels was that Raistlin wanted to go to Zaxaroth because he wanted to find the spell books of Fistandantilus. And there was this big deal about, you know, Fistandantilus's, you know, spell books and, you know, how they had this midnight blue, you know, leather covering. And that's how he knew they, you know, what they were. And it was, it was exciting to read about this because it's like, these are books and books are important and books are power. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the ones that don't need the books. Let's talk about sorcerers. <laughs> you know, if wizards gain their magic through dedicated study, how do we handle the natural talent of their sorceress cousins? You know, the, the various sorceress origins, is it blood? Is it, her, you know, heredity? Is it birthright? Some other origin? How do you work that into material for your character or the campaign? So I think there's, there's two interesting things that could be wider topics just on their own about sorcerers. And one is sorcerers can be one of those classes that falls into that chosen one thing because, you know, you are 
descended from this bloodline that is able to do this thing that nobody else can do. So you're expected to do it, which gets into a lot of things that you need to talk about. What does a chosen one mean in your campaign? The other thing that I don't think we used to think about as much is that there are some like creepy vibes about, you know, protecting a bloodline so that a bloodline is powerful and that it retains its power. And that is a not a good that's not a good storyline. There are very <laughs> terrible people that believe that kind of thing is true. And we should not be encouraging that. So I do kind of like sorcerers to be more random. It's not just everyone in this bloodline is more powerful in magic than anyone else, because that is a mm, that is a a very negative power trip, I think. I, I wouldn't mind having that aspect on the villain side of things. It's easier to portray on the villain side that there is also a downside to the fact that they right. are that hung up on the purity of their bloodline. Yeah. The funny thing is, is this is one of those things that dovetails from D&D into a very popular other media thing, which is Star Wars and the whole thing with midi-chlorians and people being <laughs> born with parasites that tell them how to use the Force. I was actually thinking of Star Wars as you were talking about that whole bloodline thing. And, you mm -hmm. know, like, we don't need to go into the third trilogy and some of the problematic <laughs> things they did there. No. But it's like, I much prefer it that maybe it is genetically passed down but it's unpredictable enough that it doesn't necessarily have to be based on family lines sometimes you don't need a last name i think the thing is though with sorcerers it can be cool to say that yes my sorcerer was descended from this dragon that fell in love with this knight and blah 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 and this has come through that's cool just don't make it like the whole family has always been this way like it's yeah. kind of a neat callback to a special specific thing the other thing that I do like, though, is that there is some wording in 5th edition that sorcerers aren't necessarily just born this way because they inherit it, but they might have like a connection to a source of power. It's not mm -hmm. something they did. It's not like a warlock where they went and sought it out. It's just they are connected to some source of power through no deed of their own. And that's where their power comes from. Like you fell asleep in a fairy mound or something, you know, in the city of Cal's campaign, Dove was born on a special night um which is what formed her connection to both the wild magic that informs her powers and the ice control that she has it's part of why she caught the eye of the goddess of magic mythanwe who is utterly and completely chaotic because magic as the gm said should always be a little scary and chaotic <laughs> I do like that to a certain extent, sorcerers almost feel more like the, the X-Men of D&D uh, in this edition than they did in previous editions. Because in third edition, when they introduced sorcerers, it very much felt like, you know, you are from this magical bloodline and it is this specific bloodline that gives you your power. Like you're from a draconic bloodline and that's where you get this from. Mm -hmm. But with sorcerers in fifth edition, it really does feel more like you don't know, like all sorts of weird, chaotic things can happen in a magical world that could have triggered this in you. Yes. And then, you know, you have these powers and it's kind of neat. And I like that feeling for sorcerers that they have now. It's been a lot of fun playing Dove throughout the, the, the entirety of this campaign, which we started in like 2015. So... I have a lot of affection for sorcerers. And, you know, if you have a clockwork soul sorcerer, maybe they got bitten by a radioactive Modron and that's where they get their <laughs> powers from. <laughs> so we've covered uh, book learning and raw talent. 
So let's move on to those who basically buy their power. Let's talk about warlocks. Have you put much thought into your characters or your campaigns for the pact that was actually made to grant them their power? I really like the idea. And, you know, there are people that don't necessarily think about this so much as they like the gameplay elements of warlocks. I love the story potential of warlocks because... Did you hear something calling to you and tempting you to make this deal? Did you seek this thing out because you were just that desperate for power? Technically, I know Raceland is not a warlock, but then again, he did have a warlock patron with uh, Fist and Antilus to bring that back around. <laughs> and it was this sort of thing like Fist and Antilus wanted a conduit into the world and Raceland was desperate to survive his test. And that's a great story. Like that is a great, it's, I, I know Raceland isn't a warlock. Go, don't, don't send me emails, but... <laughs> This is actually why I wanted to bring up this general topic, because with playing Baldur's Gate and how much Will's patron features in the story of the game, no spoilers, I'm only about halfway through, <laughs> I was like, I've never actually seen this in a game. I've run games where there's warlocks, I've played in games where there's warlocks, and I've never ever seen their patron actually come along and demand anything of the warlock. So have you ever run a game or played a warlock where your patron actually, you know, showed up in the plot to demand anything? So unfortunately, most of the time that I have played warlocks, it has been in Adventurers League, which is probably not an ideal situation for a DM to just randomly start telling you that, some weird cosmic entity is whispering in your ear because yeah. that is customizing things a little bit more than Adventures League assumes you're going to do. Definitely in multiple campaigns that I have run, I, as a DM, cannot help but ham it up when it comes to, you know, you're going to give me a patron as an NPC. I am going to use that patron as an NPC. <laughs> when I was running the uh, Tales of the Old Margrave um, uh, campaign in Midgard, one of our characters was a warlock who had a pact with Baba Yaga. Like her whole family had been wiped out and Baba Yaga raised her as, you know, from a, a little child. And a lot of that campaign was this whole tension of like, yeah, I'm supposed to protect the forest, but I also don't know what grandmother is going to want of me. And it did kind of turn into like a lot of political maneuvering between different, you know, fey lords and ladies and, things that Baba Yaga expected and you know it, it was really neat and and Baba Yaga is a great patron for that because very traditionally she is potentially horribly evil but also someone that protect people that protects people under certain circumstances and mm -hmm. keeps the other really bad things at bay so she is just she's that great you know balance between those things for when you're using a warlock patron I actually really regret not Thinking about this when I ran the Dragon Heist campaign, because one of my players was playing a Hexblade Warlock, and he was playing a teenage girl with a lot of emotional trauma <laughs> and issues, and it would have been really interesting to bring, you know, that patron concept more into play in that game, but I kind of didn't really understand what I was dealing with and just Okay, that's just their character. They're doing their thing. But now that I think about it, in the City of Cal's campaign, Modrin is our any celestial warlock. That's what he is. And I was thinking about this, and he has had regular communication with his patron 
but it's usually been done off camera Mm -hmm. in email exchanges between the GM and the player where the player knows what's going on and what missions he's been given by his patron. But we, all we know is he's just, you know, he's, he's a really pretty warlock boy. (laughs) See, I like, cause I've heard some people say they have a harder time visualizing the uh, celestial patron being that same kind of antagonistic that other warlock patrons are. And I think maybe watching 14 and a half seasons of supernatural kind of drove home this idea that you can have angels that are almost as bad as your villains because they're very focused on doing a very specific thing that they believe is right. Yeah. And I can definitely see having, you know, having some archangel that, has a warlock patron or has a warlock that they are a patron to that is basically heaven's black ops for them. (laughs) The gods and the other angels maybe don't want me to act this directly, but I'm going to tell you to act directly and use my power to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in City of Calls, we really haven't had that much of a problem with him having an antagonistic relationship with his patron because the whole point of the campaign has been to stop the, the invasion of the demonic devil. I don't know the difference between demons and devils. I'm a bad <laughs> D&D player. Either way, stop the invasion, which we weren't able to do, so now we need to fix it. I say this as my preference, that I like to have that kind of tension between the warlock patron and the warlock, but this is something you don't want that to become ant- antagonistic. And you don't want someone to not feel like they can play their character the way they want to play it. Right. I think it's something it's it's more fun to imply and put a little bit of pressure on them than it is to just outright say your patron is mad at you. So they hit you with a lightning bolt because you didn't do that thing that they wanted you to do. That's not really the right way to do that. (laughs) I think this whole conversation kind of boils down to, you know, in, in I'm kind of giving the summary before we're actually at the end. But as GMs figure out what pieces of these character backgrounds and stories that you can bring into play in your campaign, um, but make sure it's something that the player is interested in. And Mm -hmm. players, if you are interested in exploring these things, make sure your GM knows it. You know, that's that's really the key to all of this when we're talking about the various story elements you can pull in from the classes in D&D. Oh, and, you know, because we have to be on brand here because we're talking about D&D and we're also segueing into to, uh, comic book stuff, Ghost Rider is a great concept for a warlock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that idea that the spirit of vengeance is kind of like writing your character and, you know, even to the point to where you're maybe acting more as your patron than as yourself sometimes when you're really in the throes of power. That is kind of a a neat idea. (laughs) This just completely reframes Robbie's story in Midnight Suns. (laughs) Anyway, so um, let's move on to our two kind of adjacent (laughs) arcane characters. Um, First up is the Artificer. Um, You know, how connected are the Artificers in your games to the magic that is inherent in their gadgets? So I think what's weird is um, I have not had a ton of artificers, but for example, with me running in Midgard, as I said, like there is a whole school of clockwork magic in Zobek. 
that is just like tailor made for artificer. You know, this is mm-hmm. this learning where engineering and magic intertwines with one another to produce effects. And that is a very, you know, intentional thing. Um, and then the other thing is even before there was Eberron and artificers, there were tinker gnomes in Dragonlance. Mm-hmm. And yes, people are going to yell at me and say, no, they were never magical and they were supposed to always screw things up. <laughs> Go back and read that chart in the first edition AD&D Dragonlance Adventures book and tell me that when it says that sometimes you could accidentally make a machine that could raise somebody from the dead, that Tinker Gnomes weren't doing something magical, whether they intended to or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in Eberron, I've, I've enjoyed, you know, the the... Like, they know it's magic. It's just mm. in Eberron, there is understood to be this relationship between engineering and magic that just easily happens. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the Warforged. I do like the idea that you could have somebody that is just such a good engineer that they don't realize that they are dealing with magic, though. That is kind of a fun concept. Like somebody that's just so good at building machinery that they're tapping into the creative forces of the universe unintentionally. Like they are just so naturally skilled that it happens. It's a neat idea, too, because artificers use tools as one of their focus objects, too. <laughs> I could see that being a completely fun thing and way to play artificers in the game. I don't think I've ever seen it work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I In the Zendrick game, we have I have thrown in you know, opportunities for our goblin artificer to find old, you know, pieces of machinery that he can then tinker with and do more stuff with. But the player also drives a lot of that. Yeah. He keeps at the forefront that this is what his character is. Yes, there's magic and he can heal you with a healing word or whatever it is, but it's still (laughs) just these are all his gadgets and tinkering that he has done to make things come to life with his his stuff and i also kind of like the idea that you know the other end of that where it is they know that it's magical but it's not literally it's not like they learn spells like wizards or something like yes the rules say that it is a spell but actually he's bringing out some trinket that he knows is magical but that's what's actually doing it it's not like he's saying words and waving his hands it's that i pulled out this pocket watch that is specifically enchanted to cause haste and it's not really me it's just that i know how to build a pocket watch that does this thing (laughs) so let's move on to talk about bards they are definitely a mix of arcane magic with a touch of the the primal or the divine magic but they can truly step into the arcane role for a group and their subclasses are called colleges but how organized are these associations? Have you ever played with the the bardic associations that should exist based on these subclasses? What's really interesting to me, like even like they have used the term college for for uh, bards going back a long time before there were subclasses. And even when bards were a weird multi-class, you know, <laughs> multi-class monstrosity. Yeah. Fighter, thief druid bard thing oh first edition but i mean to some extent i have definitely used the idea that certain colleges are an existing tradition not necessarily that there is a a building with certain teachers that are teaching things like a traditional college but that 
your master that trained you how to be a bard was a member of this tradition. And that tradition was called the college of whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. it is a, there is a direct lineage of people that are passing on bardic talent talents that go along with a certain path for that, that have been passed on from one bard to another. I think there could be some fun in, you know, having this extended network of bards. (laughs) You throw a couple of charismatic characters together in a bucket and shenanigans are going to happen. So the idea of there being these whole associations of them out there, I think is really fascinating. It's just, I don't know that I've leaned into it very much either as a player or as a GM. Bards are actually one of my favorite character classes, especially like in, in fifth edition, I've definitely played my share of bards. It was funny because in third edition, I remember I had a little bit of my old school hideboundness kind of creeping in when it was like wait bards can bards are arcane casters that can heal that's wrong arcane casters don't heal that's a hard line you can't cross that and the funny thing is is now that i'm not a pain in the butt like i was back then (laughs) i like this idea that bards do not learn magic the way wizards do no It, it, it may not be divine it may not be that they're getting it from the gods they are taking ambient magic that exists in the world but they are doing it in a different way they are being creative with it they are singing songs they are performing and i like the idea that maybe because you are singing songs you're being creative you're making things you know you're you're you know connecting with people on a one-to-one basis with your performances and your charisma that maybe you can twist that arcane magic in a way that like equations and precise movements don't do that will actually cause somebody to heal because you can pull that magic into them, you know, just because you have that force of will in your performances. I actually love the way that all of these classes, if you're, if you're dealing with a source of magic in your game world, they're all pulling on that same source of magic. They're just doing it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Wizards are doing it through pure study and dedication. Sorcerers are doing it through the pure, you know, like talent. And just aptitude that they have been gifted for whatever reason. Warlocks have bargained away a piece of themselves to have access to it. <laughs> um, artificers just happen to be able to, you know, craft mm-hmm. the magic into objects just through their sheer talent as engineers. And, you know, bards are pretty <laughs> and they can sing a song and they've convinced the magic that they should do what they want. One of the things that's really interesting to me, and I don't think we talk about this a whole lot in D&D because we kind of take things as all or nothing, you know, at least with the core rules a lot of times, but you could really have a D&D setting now, especially where there wasn't divine or primal magic. There is just people that are using arcane magic. There are just people that learn how to use this ambient magic that's not necessarily tied to any other things other than warlocks. This is Dragon Age. Honestly, and you could do that to where and it and unlike other editions of D&D where it would be like, well, I can't heal, I can't, you know, remove conditions that are permanent, I can't bring somebody back from the dead. No, you can do all of that if you have a bard or to a certain extent an artificer. I I love the Dragon uh the Dragon Age setting for a lot of reasons, but one of the the things I enjoy the most is that magic is just magic. 
There are no arcane casters and divine casters. There are just those who have an aptitude for magic. And some of that magic can be used to burn down a building. And some of that magic can be used to heal somebody and bring them back from the brink of death. One of my convention horror stories (laughs) is that I went to play a Dragon Age game because the game was out and I wanted to try it. And somebody was running it at Gen Con and I showed up and realized this guy has absolutely no idea what Dragon Age is because not only did he, he had a dwarf cleric, which, you know, if you're a and d player, you're like, okay, what, what's wrong with that? In Dragon Age, dwarves <laughs> specifically cannot cast magic. It's built into the concept of their culture, their species, everything. They can craft magic, but they cannot cast it. So having a character that could cast healing magic (laughs) just because he's a dwarf cleric is like, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. (laughs) And the GM got really, really mad because me and one other player had shown up because we really like Dragon Age. So we started using just Dragon Age terminology (laughs) back and forth. And the GM had no idea what we were saying. Oh, goodness. Sometimes if you're going to run a licensed RPG, it helps to know the IP. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't get the balls of running a licensed RPG at Gen Con and not having a clue about it. He basically just wanted to run D&D without it being D&D. Disclaimer, I am not advocating that anyone be a cannon wonk and jump on somebody because they didn't realize that this didn't happen until this year or whatever. But the basic precepts of an IP are kind of important. <laughs> yes. Two last little things to cover here. Do the societies in your settings have rules about using magic? Does it ever get regulated, possibly to the point where casting magic could lead to arrest? Speaking of Dragon Age. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole thing about having an entire part of the uh, chantry that just watches for people to step out of line. All those Templars. That's actually one of the things I kind of like in. Dragonlance that I don't actually see played up as much in some of the adventures or even when people talk about it, but the wizards of high sorcery, like keep an eye on people that learn magic. And if you are doing something that they think is reckless, you will be told to stop. And if you keep doing it, you will not exist anymore. (laughs) I don't want to be oppressive to my players, but I like that as a role-playing element that maybe if you go too far, maybe if you fireball that church in town, Somebody is going to get on you about it, especially because magic is a potentially dangerous thing that people pay attention to. I think this is one of those areas where you need you and your players need to be on the same page. You need to have agreed to this ahead of time because, you know, as Jared said, you don't want to stop on stomp on your players fun. So if your player really, really wants to play a wizard, okay, they want to play a wizard. But if you are going to have very strong restrictions on this in the setting that player needs to understand that that's what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. You don't want to, you don't want to have the player decide to play this arcane character, like a sorcerer with wild magic. And then you bring to the table a setting where that's going to get them arrested and tried for heresy and imprisoned for the rest of their life. If they're lucky. Yeah. You need to make sure everyone is on the same page, that this is an actual major part of the plot of the game. I know. Ghostfire Gaming's Grim Hollow setting, they have a country where people like they have um, 
a whole organization that watches out for wizards and sees if they get out of line and and all of that and that's fun in a setting because if it's not the whole setting if you visit that place and you're used to being an adventurer that doesn't have people keeping an eye on you that can be a fun role-playing point as a change of pace instead of you know something that is oppressively on you all the time yeah but there's also like smaller rules that come up like in forgotten realms in Cormor, you're supposed to be registered if you're a wizard it's not really saying so much that you can't do this or that it's just that if you come into the borders and you can cast spells the war wizards just want your name and to be able to say okay we know you're a wizard we got you in our book you're down and it's it's just like a little thing that kind of makes sense that maybe if you have an organized secret police composed of wizards that they probably would be keeping an eye on anybody that can cast spells that comes into the country yep and there's even like if you look into um and this came up in a few places in um in dragon heist but Waterdeep has some specific laws about what spells you can cast and what spells you can't because for example like casting any kind of spell that subverts someone else's will is actually a big deal in Waterdeep. It may be some minor amount of property damage if you blast something with a lightning bolt. You know, you'll probably get charged for doing property damage. But if you used um, suggestion to get a better deal on something, that is not that is not okay in Waterdeep. That'll get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. One last thing: um, some settings portray using magic as having a long-term detrimental effect on the mental health of arcane casters. Is this something you have ever seen put into play in a D&D game? And if you have, was it kept from falling on bad mental health <laughs> stereotypes? I mean, we've all seen the, you know, the crazy wizard mm-hmm. in, you know, various media related to our beloved fantasy genre. Honestly, that's kind of part of what they played up with uh, Fizban in the Dragonland setting, except that then you find out he's not actually a wizard. He's a god. It was a shtick. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing that I find is really funny that Ed Greenwood has said many times is the reason people aren't supposed to expect Elminster to save the day is that Elminster is not all there anymore. <laughs> He's lived like nine lifetimes and has been channeling a goddess for all this time. He is not entirely there anymore. So he's not supposed to be defendable. But I do like the idea that instead of trying to say that it is some kind of damaging mental illness or something like that i like the idea that you are just so open to the cosmos that it's just really hard for you to focus on what's going on right here and now oh yeah <laughs> like you're feeling stuff out in the astral plane you're touching the the ethereal without even meaning to like it's really hard to remember how to cook supper when you <laughs> when you keep having these <laughs> visions like this any long-lived character that has lived x number of centuries should be a little disconnected mm-hmm. from everyday life because they've been there, done that. It, it'll it get done or it won't get done. They've got bigger things on their mind. It's not a wizard, but it's one of the things that I've been trying to portray with your Void Dragon friend. Yeah. He just does not see reality the same way as somebody that is not connected to the Void in between realities. No, no. He actually enjoyed this experience of dying and being brought back as a baby. <laughs> and it's like... Okay, man, you do you. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. All right, it's time to look at our downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. 
Most of us gamers are goblins at heart when it comes to our dice. We all want more shiny math rocks. So <laughs> this week, I'm going to recommend Easy Roller Dice. I ended up on their mailing list somehow. I don't remember signing up for it. It, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Either way, I get their emails, you know, promoting their stuff, and they often have fun sales. Uh, they have some really pretty dice. In addition to the regular you know, fancy dice sets. They also have these mystery dice sets, which are brilliant because they're just, it's just a little black package you get shipped to you. And they usually have a buy one, get two free sale often. And you just get this package of dice and you have no <laughs> idea what's inside. I also really like their dice jail. It's what I keep on my desk to have <laughs> dice at hand at any time. It's just really cute. So. There'll be a link in the show notes. This would be the perfect part of a show to recommend Kickstarters. I don't do it that often because timing is always a weird thing with Kickstarters because like, I'm going to tell people about this and then I don't know if they're going to have any time to follow up on this, but I'm going to bring up a Kickstarter. Cubicle 7 has been doing a lot of neat 5e supplements that have been playing with the parts of 5e that Wizards doesn't touch quite as much. And, you know, they've done Uncharted Journeys. A Life Well Lived is about ready to come out, which is all about, you know, things like uh, generating backstory and downtime, you know, activities. They currently have a Kickstarter right now. And as of the time this this episode comes out, you'll have probably about seven days to back this yet. And it is called the Vault 5e Crafting and Alchemy kick, Kickstarter. It is actually for two different books. One is Hammer and Anvil and the other is Mortar and Pestle. Hammer and Anvil is basically about making permanent magic items. So it's creating a crafting system for that sort of thing. Whereas mortar and pestle is more about creating like consumable magic items like potions and things like that. Just because I know uncharted journeys has been really, I've really enjoyed that. I haven't gotten to use it as much as I, I would like to, but I've used it a little bit and I really like that book. And I like this idea of playing in those spaces that, you know, that I don't necessarily even expect wizards to put a lot of effort into because it's not where everyone's focus is going to be. But I like that these books exist so that if you want that focus to be there, you now have something that's going to give you some detail to look into there. So Vault 5e Crafting and Alchemy, you should have about seven days to check it out if you want to. If you want to learn how, if you want a whole other system for making magic items, which is really kind of thin in 5e as it stands right now, this could be a fun thing to check out. So moving on. We're happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout-out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us, also consider checking out... The Gnomecast. Several gnomes from Gnomes 2 get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. <laughs> 